Hello, welcome to Challenger Approaching, a podcast about the history behind every major franchise featured in the Smash Brothers series. I'm your host, freelance games journalist and author Ben Bertoli. Here on Challenger Approaching, I cover key entries, interesting game details, and fun trivia about a single series. A guest expert or superfan will also be dropping by to give us the lowdown on their favorite game or a moment in the series history that they find intriguing. And just a quick warning that I'm not so great at pronouncing Japanese words and names, and they do tend to pop up, but I'll do my darndest to get them right. For our seventh episode, we'll be focusing on a series that really sucks. I mean, the main character is known for literally sucking up bad guys. Stock your lunchbox with maximum tomatoes and grab the nearest warp star to dreamland. It's time for the history of Nintendo's unbearably cute pink puff, Kirby. Now, a quick note before we get rolling. In past episodes, I've made a point to at least mention many somewhat insignificant series entries, along with their release year and system. This is sort of bogged down and taken away from more interesting aspects that I could be focusing on. So, from here on out, I'm going to try and leave these less important games on the cutting room floor. Speaking of somewhat less important games, the Kirby franchise is full of little spin-offs that don't have much bearing on the main adventure series. There's Kirby's Pinball Land, Kirby's Star Kirby's Stacker, Dream Kirby Course, Fighters Deluxe, Kirby Tilt Kirby's Avalanche, Kirby Dash, Kirby's Block Blowout Blast. You get the idea. If I feel like they're worth mentioning, I'll certainly bring them up. But if I leave out your favorite Kirby game, well, just know it wasn't personal, and I'm very aware that it does exist. Okay, let's start back up again. Kirby was first conceived by a young Masahiro Sakurai after he began work at game development studio HAL Laboratory. HAL was created in 1980 to be one step ahead of IBM when it came to computing. Thus, its founders chose the letters H, A, and L, each one place ahead of IBM in the alphabet. Though not officially owned by Nintendo, even to this day, HAL grew to be known as a developer that worked almost exclusively with the Japanese gaming giant. Smash Brothers fans likely know the company and its logo featuring a dog sleeping in a nest of eggs from the beginning of every Super Smash Brothers title to date. Sakurai wouldn't join the HAL Laboratory team until the late 80s, hired on at the ripe old age of 19. At this time, Nintendo had tapped the studio to create a game for their Game Boy handheld that anyone could pick up and play. Series like Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda were a great challenge for those who played games often but they could be frustrating for the average consumer. Sakurai volunteered to take on this task, determined to create a game that was both fun and accessible, no matter the player. Kirby, whose simple design is iconic today, was never meant to be the star of the game. Kirby was simple because he was simply a placeholder, a pudgy blob that would soon be replaced with the real hero of the story. But as development of Sakurai's game progressed, he grew to adore this puffball placeholder, and it was decided that there would be no replacement. This circular cutie was here to stay. Of course, Sakurai didn't jump right to the name Kirby. Originally, his new character was called Popopo, and his game was dubbed Twinkle Popo, a far cry from what we know the series as today. 
When designing Popopo's abilities, Sakurai had the idea that his new character should be able to jump multiple times, or float to save himself from falling down perilous pits, a common aggravation for younger and less experienced players. Once it was settled that Popopo would suck in air to float, the team working on Twinkle Popo began to brainstorm what else the character could inhale. Why not enemies? It may surprise younger Kirby fans, but this wasn't the start of Kirby's power-stealing abilities. In this very first game for the Game Boy, Popopo could only inhale and spit out enemies, but he couldn't steal their powers. Eventually, word of this new game reached Nintendo of America, but they weren't too fond of the cutesy Popopo moniker. The head honchos at Nintendo of America wanted a name that would have more global appeal, and sent over a list of names that they felt would work better for the character. On that list, as you may have guessed, was the name Kirby. It's been a popular rumor for many years that Kirby was named after John Kirby, a lawyer who helped Nintendo win a landmark court case against Universal Studios, but there's never been any confirmation as to if that's true. It's quite possible the name Kirby was added to the Nintendo of America list because of this reason, but there's no way to know for sure. Sakurai and his team liked the name Kirby because its serious nature and hard K sound represented the opposite of their character. In Japan, cute characters were given cute names, like, well, Popopo. Kirby sounded harsh, and the juxtaposition was a fun change from the norm. Popopo officially became Kirby, and Twinkle Popo became Kirby's Dreamland, known in Japan as Kirby of the Stars. This new world, Dreamland, was inhabited with adorable little enemies like Waddle Doos and Waddle Dees, and was ruled over by the self-proclaimed King DDD, a large hammer-wielding penguin who would grow to become one of the most important and beloved Kirby characters. While Dreamland was in the works, there had been various discussions about what color Kirby should be. Sakurai wanted him to be a vibrant bubblegum pink, but legendary designer Shigeru Miyamoto was adamant that Kirby should be yellow. This debate raged on for so long that when the game was sent to be localized for players outside of Japan, the argument still hadn't been settled. Not knowing what color to give Kirby for their advertising, Nintendo of America and Nintendo of Europe decided to go with neither pink nor yellow, landing instead on white, the color that Kirby appeared on the Game Boy's grayscale screen. A ghostly white Kirby floated happily on the cover of Kirby's Dreamland, leading many to believe he was a friendly spirit of sorts. This mishap would be changed to Sakurai's pink hue of choice for all future games, but outside of Japan, Kirby's debut was a bit off-color. Recently we compared two superheroes, Dashing Superguy and Kirby from Nintendo. In some ways, Kirby lost big. No big hair, no big muscles, no weapons, nothing. All Kirby's got is appetite. Kirby's Dreamland, the thrilling adventure game on Game Boy. Kirby munches, spits back, and floats, saving glorious Dreamland. He's Kirby, and he packs a mean bite. The Kirby's Dreamland, only on Game Boy. One month before Kirby made his appearance in his first official adventure, he actually showed up in the background of another HAL Laboratory game. The opening moments of the RPG title Arcana featured a scene filled with murderous demon warriors, and tucked in the middle of these ravenous brutes was everyone's favorite little puffball. Kirby's Dreamland was just the accessible game that Nintendo had hoped for. Launching in 1992, the game went on to sell over 5 million copies, which, over 25 years later, is still the highest sales number for a Kirby title. 
Fellow HAL Laboratory employee and future Nintendo president Satoru Iwata attributed much of Kirby's early success to the fact that he was such an easy-to-draw character. He felt children around the world could doodle Kirby anywhere and everywhere, which kept him fresh in their minds. In fact, the Japanese commercial for Kirby of the Stars included a young boy giving viewers a quick Kirby drawing tutorial. In this now classic commercial, the boy draws Kirby's circular body, adds eyes, arms, and feet, at which point Kirby inhales him and spits him into space. It's interesting to note that Kirby was never intended to be a boy, or a girl for that matter. Though he is referred to as a boy in most regions of the world and throughout this podcast, inside of Japan Kirby is referred to with genderless pronouns. Kirby isn't really male or female, he's just Kirby. And while players loved Kirby and his initial outing, many found the game's challenges to be a bit too easy. Sakurai and his team kept this in mind for their next Kirby title, Kirby's Adventure, which would launch just a year later, in the spring of 1993 for the NES. And if you're thinking, NES? 1993? You're not alone. Nintendo's popular 8-bit console was no longer in the spotlight when Kirby launched. In fact, it had been playing second fiddle to the Super Nintendo for over two years at that point. This schedule of releasing Kirby games late in a console's life would continue for the next few decades. The good thing about Kirby's adventure coming so late in the NES's life was that developers knew just how to squeeze every ounce of power and color out of the aging system. Kirby was made larger, given his pink coloring, and endowed with the new power to copy his enemies' abilities. The developers at HAL managed to cram 40 different copy abilities into the game including Laser, Freeze, Sword, Crash, Needle, and more. The various powers gave players a reason to play through Kirby's Adventure multiple times, so they could find and try out every single ability. The team even beefed up some of Dreamland's enemies so they would be more of a challenge when it came time to brawl. Aside from the many firsts found in Kirby's Adventure, the game also marked the first appearance of Meta Knight. The masked swordsman would soon join Dedede as a prominent Kirby enemy and ally. Up next on the Kirby schedule was a direct sequel to the Game Boy original. Released in 1995, Kirby's Dream Land 2 brought Kirby's new power-stealing abilities to the ever-expanding handheld audience. The game's main attraction was the addition of three animal friends who could aid Kirby along his journey. There was Koo the Owl, adept at flying, Kine the Sunfish, a powerful swimmer, and best of all, Rick the Hamster. Kirby could ride on Rick's back, giving him a hamsterific speed boost. Dreamland 2's story was centered around a villain known as Dark Matter, who was dead set on covering Dreamland's colorful landscape in darkness. In fact, Dreamland 2 was the start of what fans have dubbed the Dark Matter Trilogy, a string of three Kirby adventures featuring Dark Matter as the main villain. All three of the games in this trilogy were directed, not by Masahiro Sakurai, but rather Shinichi Shimomura. One of the greatest mysteries of the Kirby series is what became of Shimomura, after directing his last Kirby game in 2002, he disappeared from the world of video games. Some think he died, some think he moved on to a new career, and some think he never really existed in the first place, but was simply an alias for Sakurai to hide behind. I guess we'll never know.
When it came time for Kirby to make the floaty jump to the Super Nintendo, the team at HAL decided to try a slightly different approach. This new game, Kirby Superstar, was developed under Sakurai over a span of three years. Instead of giving players one big adventure, the game provided them with the option of seven distinct modes and two mini-games. I had three pillars in mind, Sakurai mentioned in a developer interview. One was two-player cooperative gameplay, and another was including actions similar to those in a fighting game. The third was an omnibus format. The first one, two-player cooperative gameplay, was a request from Miyamoto-san. That was really about the only request he made. Back then, players were paying high prices for games, Sakurai explained. They boasted things like long playtime and big maps. Basically, bulk had become one standard of value. I thought about having resolutions come more quickly, and that led to the omnibus format. I wanted to give each section its own plot in addition to providing different types of gameplay. Side note here. Omnibus is not a very common word. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It sounds like some kind of super bus. But basically, it just means a collection of smaller volumes, or in this case, games. As Superstar's development moved forward, a new Super Nintendo title took the world by storm. Donkey Kong Country. The game's pseudo-3D graphics blew players away in 1993, and Sakurai felt his Kirby title could also use some computer-generated imagery to help it stand out. Just like Kirby's adventure before it, Superstar launched at the end of an era. The game hit store shelves in September of 1996, a mere nine days before the North American launch of Nintendo's newest home console, the Nintendo 64. In Japan, the game's packaging resembled that of a wooden box with a Kirby seal burnt on top. A common sight for high-priced items, giving the game a perceived air of luxury and class. And as if Superstar's timing wasn't bad enough, HAL just so happened to have another Kirby title in the works for the Super Nintendo at the same time. With scribbly-looking visuals and a host of new animal friends, Kirby's Dream Land 3 launched in 1997 to little fanfare. It was no superstar, but fans who hadn't moved on to the Nintendo 64 found plenty to love in the colorful Dream Land follow-up. Dream Land 3 would be the last game published by Nintendo for the Super NES in North America. It's interesting to note that while two Kirby games were released for the Super Nintendo near the end of its commercial lifespan, another Kirby title had been in the works for the Nintendo 64's launch. Tentatively titled Kirby Bowl 64, this supposed launch title was a direct sequel to Kirby's Dream Course, a golf-like game for the Super Nintendo. Beta footage of Kirby Bowl 64 showed players shooting Kirby towards an end goal through 3D obstacles and environments, as well as fighting to knock each other over the edge of a concave fighting ring. Eventually, the game was retooled into another Kirby prototype that would also never see the light of day, Kirby's Air Ride. Air Ride put Kirby and friends atop their own warp stars, allowing them to race through various streamlined courses. It was thought that Air Ride also included the content from Kirby Bowl 64, but that's another mystery that we may never solve. After the release of Kirby's Dream Land 3, the team in charge of Kirby Adventures began work on his next outing, this time for the Nintendo 64's ill-fated disk drive. 
And if you don't know what the disk drive is, well, listen to the Challenger Approaching episode on Animal Crossing, or F-Zero, or Wario. It pops up a lot. Since the disk drive failed to sell, HAL decided to move Kirby to a proper N64 cartridge. The game, known initially as Kirby 64, was a 2.5D platformer, meaning it kept the side-scrolling feel of past Kirby games, but still featured fully 3D environments. Kirby 64's biggest new gimmick was the Pink Puff's ability to combine powers together. Fire and Sword gave Kirby a flaming sword. Rock and Cutter chiseled Kirby into stone sculptures. Ice and Electric made him into a fridge that shot groceries. Look, it was cute, okay? Early screenshots of the game showed players taking control of Kirby allies such as King Dedede, Adeline, and a Waddle Dee. Only King Dedede would remain playable, and only for certain level sections, when the game was finally released. Kirby 64 The Crystal Shards dropped in mid-2000, which, surprise surprise, wasn't far from the launch of Nintendo's next home console, the GameCube. Though Kirby 64 was Kirby's first official game on the Nintendo 64, a 3D Kirby had already premiered a year prior in the original Super Smash Bros. Kirby was featured as one of the series' initial 12 fighters, joining the ranks of Mario, Link, Samus, and more. In 2001, HAL and Nintendo launched a new Kirby anime, known in the States as Kirby, right back at ya. Sakurai, who worked closely on the show, had two main stipulations that had to be met if the show was to be made. Firstly, Kirby could not speak. He could grunt and squeal his usual nonsense, but the character couldn't communicate with others in the regular sense. Secondly, the show could not feature any human characters. The residents of Dreamland had to keep their whimsical and adorable designs. The show's plot revolves around Kirby crash landing on the planet Popstar, where he helps the citizens fight back against evil monsters, called forth by the bombastic King Dedede and his sidekick, Escargoon. Running from 2001 to 2003, and for exactly 100 episodes, Right Back At You still stands as one of the most well-received video game cartoon adaptations of all time. Over the next decade, Kirby's heroic exploits would be crafted exclusively for Nintendo's popular handheld devices. These included the Kirby's Adventure remake, Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland, and the Metroidvania-style platformer, Kirby and the Amazing Mirror released for the Game Boy Advance in 2001 and 2004, respectively. Nintendo's Game Boy follow-up, the DS, would also house its fair share of Kirby titles. Though both Kirby Squeak Squad and Kirby Superstar Ultra found their own adoring audience, it was the first Kirby game for the DS, labeled Canvas Curse, that caught the eye of players and gaming outlets the world over. Unlike previous Kirby adventures, Canvas Curse, known in Japan as Touch Kirby, took away all of Kirby's signature enemy gobbling powers. The game relied instead on a player's ability to draw a rainbow path for the cursed puffball, who could then be tapped to push him in the right direction. Kirby could still be infused with classic powers, but the overall gameplay was a refreshingly unique and brilliant use of the DS touchscreen capabilities.
Here to talk with us about her favorite Kirby game, all the way from Australia, is Eliza, one of the head honchos of the popular Kirby Informer. How you doing, Eliza? Not too bad, yourself? I'm doing fantastic. So what was your first Kirby game? What what pulled you into the series? Canvas Curse, I think it was called. I don't know what PAL and North America have different names. The one for the DS, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's still called Canvas Curse here, I believe. I don't know why, but it was like kind of colorful. I don't know. It just kind of drew me in. Brother had the DS and wouldn't let me play games, and I kind of stole his DS to play it. <laughs> <laughs> Did your brother ever realize you stole his uh, DS and take it back? Oh, yeah. He yelled at me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so since then, what, what games, uh, what Kirby games have been your favorites? Epic Yon holds a special place in my heart, and Triple Deluxe and Robobot, they're really, really put more twist onto the Kirby games. Yeah, those are both good ones. Now, tell us a little bit about the plot of uh, Kirby's Epic Yarn, your favorite game in the series. Something happens to Kirby, he has to fix it. <laughs> Basically. It. Seems to be the start of most games. <laughs> I recall a uh, some kind of a tomato or something. He's eating the maximum tomato. Yeah, he has to eat it, and then this bad person comes. He's like, you know what? I'm going to do something bad to you. He turns into Yarn, and he meets Prince Fluff. Every, the whole world turns into Yarn, and he has to fix everything. I think I remember reading that um, Prince Fluff was originally going to be like the star of the game. It was one of those times when they were like, "Hey, we got this adorable character. Like, let's let's give him his own game." And then they're like, "Wait a minute! Don't we already have an adorable character that looks exactly like him?" It's like Meta Knight. Like, we don't know if it's like he's kind of part of the Kirby species. Yeah, species. It's like Prince Fluff. You don't know he's part of the Kirby species. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or they wanted to add Kirby in so they could say, yeah, these these guys are related, or at least they're you know partners in crime in this sense. Yeah. So Kirby doesn't transform in the traditional sense. He doesn't like steal people's powers in Epic Yarn. What how what does he do instead? He has like a whip, kind of just like mm -hmm. picks enemies up <laughs> and throws them, and they just go poof. Right. It's been a while since I've played the game, but he could transform into things. Uh, I think he just had to touch some kind of special icon or something and he would transform into... Like a mole or it's a car or it's like a, a tank, I think one of them was as well. Yeah, I think yeah, I think there's a tank and there's, a, I think, a sled maybe. And so what, what was your favorite transformation that he goes through? The digger one. I don't know why. I just love to like try and collect all like the bees and gems as fast as I possibly could. Very stressful. Couldn't do it. <laughs> fun fun nonetheless, though, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because there was always, like, a time limit. I think there was, like, blocks you had to get through and these special uh, gems and, like you said, like, beads. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. It was like Yoshi's Island, yeah, when you had to, like, become a helicopter and you have to, like... And then it's, like, beeping, like, you know, you have certain time left. You're like, <gasps> oh, God! <laughs> yeah, it could be a little stressful. So the gems are kind of the... It's kind of like Kirby's lifeblood in this game. Uh, it was a little controversial. I guess, I don't know if controversial is the right term, but Kirby couldn't really die, right, in Epic Yarn? Yeah, that's why, like, a lot of people didn't like it, because it wasn't, like, a classic Kirby game. I can understand why, because it was very easy, because, like you said, you couldn't die. So, basically, if you collected all the gems, like, you got to a specific point on the, I guess you call it a line, like a bar, there was, like, a gold. Mm -hmm. I think it was, like, a spinning wheel at the end of each level. 
basically you couldn't die and if you fell down on like a hole or something you basically just got picked up a lot of people didn't like it because dying made Kirby games more like challenging yeah more challenging and people thought Kirby's epic account was towards like five-year-olds and oh yeah a little too a little too babyish yeah a little too easy to get, yeah and i could see that too with the visuals and it's so soft and music was like you know mm-hmm. slow and more kiddie-ish right i remember when i when i was in college uh, a couple of people stopped by and kirby had just come out 2010 i believe and they were like hey let's go to the party yeah and i was like no i want to play a new kirby game <laughs> <laughs> and sitting sitting on my you know television screen and it's like a very pink you know, cutesy, like, winter scene, lovely piano music in the background. They're like, really? This is what you're going to do tonight? So to go to the party? Like, yeah. Yes. It's Kirby. Come Leave on. Me yeah. This guy's a legacy. Who are you? Get out of here. So how do you feel about Kirby games, like the newer ones? Have you played the one on the Switch? Yes, I completed it. And it was a little bit short, like, compared to other Kirby games. But they brought back old characters mm-hmm. so you could play with them. And there's been a lot of, like, DLC for it, right? Over the past year, it's gotten a lot better. I've heard a lot of people say that. Yeah, that's what, like, the Dream Friends were. And, like, you play as, like, Ribbon and, you know, Marks and all those other characters. And I, I like the fact that you kind of got, like, free DLC and they're kind of more supporting it because with other Kirby games, they weren't more supported. So even after a year, they're kind of still, like, trying to push it. And then they're re-releasing Epic Yarn, right, on the 3DS here soon? Yes. <laughs> So ready. <laughs> so you, I take it you're planning on picking that one up as well? Oh, yeah. Can't wait to like freak out and try and get all those gems. Is there added content? Because it's like Kirby's extra epic yarn or something like that? Yeah, you get there's mini games. You can play as Meta Knight and DDD. And there's like these challenge modes where you can actually die. Yeah, oh, I can see that. Yeah, so the, maybe they'll draw more of the hardcore crowd. Yeah, so I hope people don't complain. <laughs> It's the video game community. They always complain. Yes, of course. (laughs) I'd be happy. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about Kirby today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Though there was no official Kirby adventure ever released for the GameCube, there had been a Kirby game in the works for the system since its launch in 2001. Starting out, the next Kirby title was set to play like Kirby 64, only with a focus on multiplayer madness. When this co-op mode failed to impress, the team at HAL morphed the game to be more in line with the 3D platformers of the time, like Donkey Kong 64 and Mario Sunshine. Finally, fearing they had lost focus on what made Kirby games of the past enjoyable, the team decided to take Kirby back to his single-player roots. In 2011, a staggering 11 years after it began development, Kirby's Return to Dreamland finally launched for the Nintendo Wii. A lot had happened during this time at HAL, including the departure of Sakurai, who left to form his own development studio, Sora Limited. Though Return to Dreamland had been built around the single-player experience and Kirby's new super abilities, the team at HAL had managed to include the co-op gameplay they had originally envisioned. In the last five years, Nintendo has released four new entries for the main Kirby Adventure series, each with its own twist on the classic 2D gameplay. 
Kirby Triple Deluxe, the first Kirby title on the 3DS, gave the Popstar Hero a new Hypernova ability, allowing him to inhale items and enemies previously too large. The only Kirby adventure for the Wii U, Kirby and the Rainbow Curse, launched in 2015 as a touchscreen-focused sequel to the popular Canvas Curse. The adorably titled Planet Robobot, also for the 3DS, saw Kirby climbing into ultra-cute mech suits for some more sci-fi-inspired battles. The most recent Kirby game, the one Eliza and I talked about briefly, is Kirby Star Allies, a game that felt a bit straightforward and short on content when it launched in the spring of 2018 for the Nintendo Switch. A year later, the game has been beefed up with multiple rounds of free DLC. Former challenger approaching guest and Kirby fan Steven Totillo did a piece on the game for Kotaku in November of 2018. Steven stated, Star Allies' main and side modes are disappointingly straightforward and lacking in clever new ideas, but the game has received a heap of additional personality and flair thanks to the new characters, making it now feel like an interactive celebration of the Kirby franchise's long run. Unsurprisingly, Kirby plays a major role in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate's main story mode. He is, after all, HAL Laboratory's most well-known mascot, and we surely haven't seen the last of his adventures and cameos. Hey, you know what that music means. It's time for bonus stage, the part of the show where I get just a little too excited about interesting tidbits that wouldn't fit anywhere else in the episode. Tidbit number one. Though Kirby is a squishy and lovable character, his portrayal on the box art of his American releases has a long history of showing more of his serious side. Kirby's frowns and angry eyebrows on Western covers were chosen to make him seem more tough a characteristic that Nintendo of America has claimed to be more appealing to its audience. Tidbit number two. A Japan exclusive known as Kirby's Toy Box launched for the Super Famicom's satellite add-on, the Satellaview, in 1996. This often forgotten title was a collection of Kirby-themed minigames that Japanese players could beam into their homes depending on the date and time of day. It included baseball, pinball, pachinko, and more each decked out with the standard Kirby fanfare. Tidbit number three. In Kirby 64, the Crystal Shards, one of the planets that Kirby visits is called Shiverstar. On the world selection screen, Shiverstar is seen to be covered in ice, and beneath that ice are the blurry but recognizable outlines of all of Earth's major continents. This has led many fans to believe that Kirby may take place in our own post-apocalyptic future. Tidbit number four. Kirby Superstar touted 8 games in one, but it almost had 9. A scrapped Superstar concept included Kagiro Mansion, a survival horror game in which the player would control an eerie version of Kirby whose mouth was sealed shut by a curse. Spooky! Challenger Approaching is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Ben Bertoli, here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Our opening track was created by chiptune composer Bran Flakes. 
His music can be found on YouTube under the handle BrandFlakes325. All of the music samples used in this episode are the property of Nintendo. Special thanks to Eliza for coming on the show as our expert. You can find her on Twitter at IamELXZA, and you can read her work on KirbyInformer.com. If you have comments or suggestions for the podcast, or feel I left out something terribly important, feel free to tweet at SuperBentendo, or shoot me an email at HeyBertoli at gmail.com. Challenger Approaching will return soon with our final episode for Season 1, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. See you soon!